Welcome to the To Your Bible, a custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor at Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And we are continuing towards the end of David's life here as we uh, get into Second Samuel and Chronicles and Kings all this week. And so you get three different Old Testament books to choose from. Uh, and we uh, get the story of um, these Gibeonites popping up again, this group that Joshua had made um, this, this agreement, this sort of covenant with that, uh, they were shady. They lied to him. Uh, if you remember from the book of Joshua, but, um, they, they, they promised that they would not bring harm upon the Gibeonites. And yet at some point in their history, someone brought harm to them, whether it was first Samuel 22 or, or, or somewhere, um, the Gibeonites certainly have been, um, harmed and now they want retribution for it. And so, uh, they yeah. come requesting it, uh, of David and particularly they want, um, Saul's sons. Uh, and, um, it's hard. Uh, some of the language there is that this is sort of Saul's bloody house. So were the sons involved in, in the, in the slaughter of some of the Gibeonites? Um, if, if so, then this is reasonable and just, mm-hmm. if not, um, if not, it's violating the law from Deuteronomy that says you can't put children to death because of their father's sins. Yeah, and so um, it's a little bit tough. It might be that David's doing the totally wrong thing here. It might be just, and and the commentator just, or the narrator just doesn't quite give us the total uh, framework. He doesn't necessarily present it as bad, but he doesn't present it as like the total right thing to do either. Um, but uh, the pestilence does go away. Um, but it is interesting. It's not just their death that causes the pestilence to go away. It's actually their return and their proper burial and then, or the famine, not the pestilence, uh, the famine ultimately gets settled. And so um, there's a little bit of like how to read and interpret that, 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 that would be hard. Like if I was preaching on that, I would have a hard time deciding uh, which way to go, but yeah. it is what it is. It's yeah. what we got in some narratives. And I think it's, it's noteworthy that we have um, the concubine Rizpa named here because she is the one who was standing up for what was right and justice and valuing the lives of those kids. Um, or I guess they were adults at that point, but yeah, the two sons of hers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then uh, there's some wars with the Philistines. Mm-hmm. This definitely feels like David. David's just uh, it, all the people serving and fighting are like David. Just we don't need you to fight. And whether it's because David's really old, David's weak, David's a distraction, who knows? But um, the the people of Israel are fighting the giants now, and they don't need David's help at this point. Yeah, we're kind of seeing David's strength wind down in these last stories. Yeah. And then the author of Samuel doesn't want the uh, the writers of Psalms to get all the glory, and so he includes. Uh, what is essentially Psalm 18 mm-hmm. uh, included in this uh, in this uh, letter or in this history of his? And so, just reminding uh, God's rock, death might be looming, but God saves from the en- from enemies. There's the Red Sea imagery in some of the poetry here. Um, David points out his own obedience and humility. It's great. Um, it feels like uh, Sarah Sarah called it a little bit of like Star Spangled Banner. There's some there's some sort of patriotic feel to this, like. Uh, for Israel that I think David's writing for these people. Yeah, but I think what's interesting too is that he emphasizes the characteristics of God that are necessary in battle. Like God is a rock and a refuge, shield, stronghold, savior from the violence. And so he does give glory to God for the rescue, but you know, and acknowledges God's steadfast love, but David still plays a role in it. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely praiseworthy of of the God of Israel more than just Israel. Yeah. And then... um, what felt a little premature, but we kind of get David's weird final words in some ways and mm-hmm. in, in, in poetry and wisdom form uh, that this right, the right king is like a sun beaming down, but the unrighteous is like a thorn. And it feels reflective. I mean, when he was walking, Israel was great. 
uh, when he was walking with the Lord, it was great. And when he was broken, Israel was struggling and things broke apart quite a bit. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like a mini version of Ecclesiastes, what we read. Like David has seen what matters and what doesn't matter. Um, He's realized the beauty and the blessing that comes with being an upright king. Um, And he trusts in God's everlasting covenant. Um, And he also sees the destruction and the wickedness that comes from those who are worthless. So he's experienced both sides of this. And um, yeah, I like like these final words. I don't know that he exactly puts them into practice, but at least he knows them. And a lot of what we see in David's story is the intentions of the heart versus the actual actions. Yep. And then there's some dudes, the mighty men. They fought valiantly. They fought. Yeah. <laughs> so actually, many lists of the yeah, I'm men. sort of over I'm any listing of yeah. the mighty men. I'm like, cool. Let's move on. Uh, and then David takes the census, which um, is, uh, as you read both censuses this week, you might notice that there's some differences to the story. You might notice um, some of the uniqueness of how Samuel told it versus how the chronicler told it. And um, the, 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 the issue, the main issue at hand is that um, – I mean, God, a, a census itself is not necessarily wrong. Israel's done it before under the prompting of God. But here, what the majority use of census is, is around um, taxing and, and building larger armies and, and things like that. And so uh, those were historic uses. And even the, the army stuff is totally implied here. The fact that Joab is the one who has to do this mm-hmm. and he counts all the men who drew their swords, um, that, like – there, there's already the army side of that, but there's also the taxation side that was pretty normative too. And so, um, and, and, and so it's the question of, all right, like that, that feels like the problem with choosing to do this, the, the sort of, um, Israel trying or wanting to be like all the other nations around them in terms of, do we have enough military people? Do we have enough money? Do we have enough of those kind of things, which, is totally not in line with how God designed them to be as a country. And I would argue the Chronicler draws that out that much more. Um, the nuance around like that Satan prompted him or the Lord prompted him. I mean, the, the answer in some ways is yes. Uh, that um, if we see from Job and we'll certainly get there uh, eventually, but yes, like any temptation that comes in life kind of goes through both channels. Like it's under the sovereignty of God, but ultimately Satan's the one that, that ultimately is, is trying to entice us to sin. And so um, both can be happening at the same time. And so for whatever reason, Samuel puts as the Lord, while the chronicler who has probably seen now hundreds of years of the repercussion of this moment to go, Oh, that was just straight up Satan. And, Mm. um, and not only that, but even points out like, the, the larger implications we'll, we'll see. Um, I mean, I might as well say it now because you guys have already read these, but um, we, we see uh, Joab go out of his way to say like, why are you bringing this guilt upon Israel in the Chronicles story? And then God's response is actually to punish Israel in the Chronicles story. And so um, the Chronicler definitely takes a larger meta moment to go like, look, this isn't just David's sin. Like this is a sin around who we were as a nation at the time. And so, um, yeah, and I would argue it's about sort of this gaining of power and might and not being unique. Uh, like, they were called out of Egypt as, as, as slaves and told constantly to remind them, like, look, remember that you were slaves once in Israel so that as you move forward, you, you will treat the orphan and the widow and all the people on the margins well. And, and in a way, don't return. Don't be like Pharaoh again. Because what we're going to see in the trajectory towards Solomon is actually this new Pharaoh that's a king of Israel. And so um, I think all of this building, like 
David David wasn't that guy. David was the shepherd in the field. He was never the might and power guy. Saul was actually the might and power guy. And David was. And so, um, but what we're seeing is David move towards the, that, that lustfulness of being just like all the other nations with might and power and taxes and armies and everything else. Um, and he's got this big building project that's probably on his mind too that's coming up. And so, um, yeah, I think all of that is the temptation that's being dealt with in the census and why it's such a big deal in the, in the storyline. Yeah. So um, to summarize all of that. <laughs> I kind of went on for a little bit there, but I think it's, I think it's important. Yeah. David is trusting in himself. He's trusting in his wealth. He's trusting in his power instead of Yahweh to provide deliverance and provide them what they need. And this census is David's act of declaring that he is now putting trust in himself. But David owns it. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Joab's the one that kind of points out David's problem here. And Joab's not always the most yeah. upright guy in the world. But uh, David owns it. and and um, I think he, it's just cool how David immediately repents. He immediately seeks forgiveness. He is struck to the heart and he takes the responsibility for his sin. And, and I think that's what sets David apart from so many of us and from King Saul is that he genuinely repented and he knew he could approach God and be real with his sin. I think uh, we saw Saul and we see others like us even hide in shame. Adam and Eve hid in shame when we sin, but we are free now, especially in Christ, to approach the throne of grace and find mercy. And it doesn't mean there won't be consequences to our sin, but their forgiveness is always available in Christ. Yep. And uh, he chooses door number three of the punishments, uh, and that is the shortest of all the punishments. Uh, and yeah, and it brings this pestilence upon the the country. But the angel that's part of bringing the pestilence, um, God in some ways restrains this angel from destroying Jerusalem in the process. Um, it stops over that threshing floor. And, and at first you're like, well, this seems like such a random particular story, but it's important to note, and, and you'll, you'll learn this as you go, um, that threshing floor will become the, the source, the place, the, the building spot of the altar or for the temple. And, and so, yeah, David builds just an altar here, but this eventually becomes the spot of the temple. And so uh, we are left with the last story in the book being the purchase of the land that the temple will be built on. And so it's not a, it's not a random story we finish with. It's a pretty significant moment uh, that this will be the land that the next book will talk about. So. Yeah. And I think one of the things even hitting on here, when you think of the 70,000 people dying, it seems unfair that David messed up and everyone suffered from it. But we have to readjust our paradigms and our mental shift to believe truly that even for you and me, every sin I commit is going to have an impact on those around me. David's impact was much more significant, but he was the king because he was the king. But no sin is just internal. There is a global corporate impact of our sin. Yeah, especially in leadership. Mm -hmm. um, so what are your final thoughts as we wrap up? Not just 2 Samuel, but probably the whole scroll of Samuel. Yeah. I mean, I like I I I think I'm glad that it's done. Uh, but I really appreciated the uniqueness of the character studies. I think I could go through and do a deep dive on Saul or David or even people like Joab or Jonathan or Hannah. I mean, we've just got a lot of really interesting characters to look at. But I think the theme we see is the faithfulness of God, you know, um, 
we know that that David is not the hero after reading all of this. We know that Saul definitely isn't the hero. Samuel isn't the hero. Um, but we also see God's word returning to Israel. And this is hopeful. The ark is back in the tent. And while they're falling a lot, it's a nation that is looking to serve and honor Yahweh. And they're not doing it well, but they're still doing it. So um, it's, it's a hopeful book, but I feel like I had to fight for the hope in it and to continue to kind of step back and look at the bigger picture of yeah. that story. Yeah. A book called Samuel is not that much about Samuel. That's true. <laughs> it's a lot about David. Um, but yeah, this this whole story, I mean, we've been in it for a while, but it really was birthed out of the end of the judges. And Samuel was technically the last of the judges. So um, yeah, after that dark history, we finally get Hannah and Samuel and eventually David. But the book is also balanced. We get Eli and sons. We get Saul. We get David's various blunders. It's, it's a mess. Um, but the central figure is David. And then the history of Israel, like... I mean, you had Abraham, you have Moses, and and you really have David. He's like the King Arthur of of Britain, or Augustus to to Rome, or Luke Skywalker to Tatooine. Like he is the most significant person from this place uh, in their history, uh, at least their political history. And and so, but I, I was kind of left with 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 sort of the the goodness of that that the the hero that's still on the flag of of Israel is. This jacked up king who's struggling left and right, who's, yes, he, at the end of the day, his heart is to return to the Lord, but is stumbling through his whole kingship. Um, and so that's good news for people like me who, who stumble all the time. But it's also the reminder, like, if this book doesn't drive home the idea that we need a better king, like Israel's best king. And we still need a better one. We're gonna we're about to see Israel's worst kings, but even at their best, we still need a better king, mm. uh, and that's what's going to be Jesus. And so, yeah, yeah, it's it's so uh, it leaves you un unfulfilled, yeah, for a reason, and and I think that's good. That's a good way to put it. Even with it ending abruptly, you're like, oh, but but there's got to be more. And of course, we know that the more is this Messiah. Yeah, yeah. If you're left with like, does it get better? No, it doesn't get better until Jesus shows up. Yeah. Uh, so uh, this is it, and and it's as it's as high and lofty as they're going to get as a nation, and and it's still not there. It's yeah, that's good. And so uh, we jumped to Chronicles. Uh, I, I kind of said my piece on uh, the, the differences and what I think is going on here, the sort of temptation to build and build and build um, and and the struggle uh, that taking the census um, will be because we will see it play out. We will see a new Pharaoh and uh, a future character uh, who's king as well. We will see Israel struggle uh, to, to, to become the sort of empire in some ways. And so um, I think this is a, a good um, demarcation story uh, to kind of point towards that. Yeah, the only thing I would add to it, just that I thought about as I read it the second time, was that there is an unseen battle, a spiritual battle going on. And so uh, it's confusing to me what's happening in the spiritual realm. It's probably confusing to most of us, but it's a reminder that there is a spiritual component to what's going on in the world around us. Yep. And once again, David buys the threshing floor. Um, and we get a few more details, but even going back to, to uh, when we did Matthew, uh, John is sitting there at, uh, and doing baptisms and the leaders of the temple come down to him and he, he tells them um, that God's winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor. And, and I, I think what, what John is referencing is, is the temple itself. And, and mm-hmm. so, um, and, and judging these Sadducee priests that are so corrupt that God is coming to ultimately judge. And so, yeah, that, that sort of threshing floor reference is, is, is related to the purchase of the temple itself yeah anyways first kings yeah y'all ready for this book um 
yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of drama in this book. There's a lot of chaos uh, that will play itself out. Um, we get a lot of contrast. We get someone like Solomon, who's a king, who comes from wealth, who has all this wisdom, who seems like slow and calculated in some ways. And then we see Elijah, who comes from nothing, who's just like shooting his mouth off, bold, confident, like um, – struggling like cynical about everybody so it's like you do have these compare and contrast characters it's like captain kirk and spock or woody and buzz if you want to go full pixar there and and both have their strengths both have their weaknesses they're both god's people um that god's people we we still need both uh both still have their brokenness um all of it and and we're gonna see that play out we're gonna see a whole lot of things held in tension as the book goes we're gonna see people struggle and they're gonna struggle with idolatry we're gonna see kings that bring in various things to worship but they're also gonna struggle with justice we're also gonna see them take poverty or take things from people or do things that are just unjust as well to the people. And I think the book's ultimately presenting leadership struggling with both mm. throughout their history. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I think we see the theme of Israel suffering because they are unfaithful to God, but God remains faithful and ready to forgive when people repent. Yeah. So and, keep an eye out for that. And God will have all sorts of presences. He'll he'll speak or be present through ravens and smoke and even in voices and, and stillness, all sorts of different ways. And so um, I feel like God has a little more of an active role in Kings than he did sometimes in, in Samuel. So, uh, yeah. So David's old. That's where we start. This is a strange start of a book. <laughs> this I whole think, chapter is a strange start, yeah. So I think what, what their author is trying to communicate is that the king was still physically able to be intimate with a woman, but he doesn't. And that's they're displaying that he's weak and he's kind of ripe to have somebody try to take his throne from him. That's how that's why I think it's set up in yeah. this way specifically. Yeah. He's just cold. <laughs> so uh Adonijah with his old cold dad realizes this is my opportunity dad's dad's right. sort of heading out let's make sure uh, I'm set up to and take he's that throne the oldest surviving son so he may assume that he's gonna get this and he decides it's time to go for it yep and so he does and Abiathar and Joab side with Adonijah but then we find out Zadok Nathan and Shammai and others side with Solomon and so um yeah but this prompts Nathan to kind of step in at this moment. Right. But before that, I just want to mention that like David does not rebuke Adonijah for this. And so this is David's, one of his like real sin struggles is he doesn't call his kids out. He doesn't stop them from doing things they shouldn't do. And so it's going to get, it's not going to go well for them. And David could have stopped it as King. Yeah. He's not the most proactive King often when, when it comes to parenting. So yeah. yeah, So Nathan and Bathsheba get together and, yeah, and and remind David maybe uh, it's hard. We don't have an explicit like one verse, at least up to this point, that um, David made this clear promise about uh, um, Solomon. But uh, that it seems like it's there, and the chronicler will continue on. Or this is Kings, but the chronicler will, I think, make it a little more clear. But uh, there's definitely this like. All right. It seems like Nathan and and Bathsheba. Nathan is a little soft heart for Bathsheba. Um, tries to tries to be tries to remind David, look, you made this promise. He's violating. Yeah, look so, what's happening so, right yeah. now. And so they kind of yeah, force David's hand. He's gotta take action, even though again it's not David's MO to take action against yeah. his children when they try to take over his kingdom. And then uh so they hatch a plan basically to also allow Solomon to be anointed king like quickly. Once again, another quick anointing which we've seen plenty of in Saul and David. Um but there's a leadership motif throughout scripture that I think it's like there's a little bit of me that like geeks out at this moment. Um Israel always has 
prophets and priests and kings and and there are different ways that that they're called to lead and in some ways i think adam was all three um but uh and we're going to see all three in jesus uh, he is a prophet a priest and king but this is one of those rare moments where we see all three kind of in together in this one one spot and with one place because we see nathan the prophet zadok the priest and solomon become king and get anointed and so it's like such a great story. They take him to a river. They do it quickly. They install him as king. And then they go down to Adonijah's ceremony. And they're like, well, you now you're committing treason. So um, you need to do something about that. So he runs. He grabs the horns of the altar, which is like home base and tag for some reason. And he's protected from uh, Solomon uh, doing anything about it and allows Adonijah basically to negotiate a surrender uh, to, to Solomon, which is great. Yeah, I Such appreciate how Solomon <laughs> showed grace to Adonijah, didn't kill him. Um, just because yeah. Solomon was shown the grace to inherit the throne as well. He didn't earn it. Yeah. And next week you're going to see uh, someone, a different someone, Solomon, someone go to the altar that doesn't grace. go as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Home base doesn't mean as much next week. Uh, and so, uh, but then we jump to 1 Corinthians uh, and... Um, it's great. Uh, Paul, sort of, Paul sort of reminds them, hey, remember our ancestors? Remember all that stuff in the desert? There was manna and there was water, like a rock. And that, that rock, that rock was even Jesus. Like he's even connecting the Old Testament to the New Testament in this moment. And, and then he's like, but remember what they did? That they had idolatry, like through they had food that they ate, they had worship practices, they had idolatrous sex, they, they were grumbling and complaining. And it's almost like Paul's like, hey, Corinthians, that sounds a whole lot like you guys. <laughs> Like you're struggling with sexuality, you're struggling with the food you're eating, you're struggling with these worship practices. There's probably some grumbling and disunity in the midst of all that. So, and so, so it's Paul almost being like, "Look, we have to learn our lesson from our people. Like mm. they they kept going into those things. We have to be the people that 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 don't that that are unified that that move away from idolatry, all that kind of stuff." Um, and and he speaks to the oneness uh, in that whole section. Yeah, I think the lesson here, first of all, this is the second time in First Corinthians we're commanded to flee idol- or flee idolatry, and the lesson here, which would benefit us to remember as well, is that we are not to cheapen the grace of God. Mm-hmm. Israel cheapened God's grace in Egypt, and they suffered massive consequences. And we are saved by Christ, and we're not saved by our own works, of course, but this warning still stands. Walk in the grace of God and be obedient and devoted to Christ, not idolatry. And I know idolatry isn't golden calves and stuff for us now, but it's maybe financial security or comfort in our home with nobody interrupting us or intruding us or, um, or an ideal body size or weight or something like that. But yeah, don't flee the idolatry. And also, you know, if there's specific things you've struggled with, don't think you can stand firm if you've fallen numerous other times in those circumstances. Like we talked about last week, the grace of God empowers us to holiness. So you will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to honor God and don't cheapen his grace. Flee idolatry. Yeah. Yeah, there's sort of like a, a hint of good news that Paul does in the midst of that warning where he's like, look, like, yeah, it's going to be tempting. It's going to be hard. But don't worry, God. God's there. God's going to provide. And like, he's there's, worth there's, it. There's a way. Um, no temptation is going to be enough that will totally overtake you. Right. So it, that's good news. And then Paul sort of starts dealing with their oneness. That there's Christ, and he's even in the communion and these elements of the of the communion. It's like he's one cup, he's one bread, and we partake in that. It's not like um, Christ is being divided into all of our bodies. It's actually a picture of us coming together and partaking of the bread of Christ. And uh, I love how Eugene Peterson deals with this section. He says, "Because there's one loaf, our manyness becomes oneness. Christ becomes uh, Christ doesn't become fragmented in us. Rather, we become unified." in him. We don't reduce Christ to what we are. He raises us to what he is. And yeah. I think it's so good that Paul's sort of like, therefore, don't be divided. If, 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 
even taking his elements of the bread and cup, like that's a picture of unity. And that's what we're called to be. So, and keep this in mind, keep this idea of being unified and not divided in your mind as we continue to talk through the rest of us, because this is a theme we're going to continue to follow with specific things Paul addresses. Yeah. Cause I, I think he deals with, um, ways that there's freedoms, but those freedoms might be exercised in a way that's being divisive. And and I think he starts dealing with them pretty quickly. Like, look, you have freedoms because of grace, but um, you, you, there's something more than just your freedoms. And and there's more thought to it. And 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 not just getting by, but what if, what if there's living for purpose and that purpose does involve caring for the holiness and, and the wellness of mm-hmm. your brothers and sisters? Um, so, um, he, he, he talks out of both sides a little bit. He's like, look, you don't have to put everything to the idolatry test. You're free to eat of all sorts of different things. But if the food is presented to you and someone says like, this is connected to some idol and it was given to some idol, like don't eat it. And not because you don't have the freedom to, it's not because of your conscience. It's actually because of their conscience. Like it's, it's for the sake of the other that you would choose not to do that thing or to choose to do that thing. And so, um, yeah, I think Paul, Paul weighs that out constantly that, that your choices, if they affect somebody else, then you need to be willing to lay down those freedoms Mm -hmm. for, either the weaker brother or sister, or even for the witness to the non-believer. Um, so if there's someone who's worshiping some other God, yeah, you, you need to you need to think through those things. Yeah, I think the, the key verse here is verse 32, which basically says, you know, do these things to the advantage of others instead of your own so that they can be saved. We do all things with salvation in mind. So consider for a moment, how do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? How do you spend your words? How do you spend your freedom? Filter them through this idea of salvation for others being the end goal. What is furthering that cause and what is hindering it and what's neutral? But we are not we are not above and beyond these same struggles. Sure, it's not a meat sacrifice to idols issue, but there are plenty of things that we prioritize our individualism over honoring others. And Paul is saying that's wrong. Don't do it. Do everything with the goal of salvation in mind for others. Yeah. And maybe it's how you spend your money. Maybe it's wearing masks. Maybe it's political positions. Maybe it's clothing choices. Maybe it's all sorts of different things that, yes, you have a lot of freedoms in Christ around, but at the same time, there's a consideration to both your weaker brothers and sisters and the watching world about what you choose to do. And and so um, that's a theme that I would argue carries over into our next section. For Uh, sure. The the sort of, um, hey, you do have freedoms, but let's make sure we understand how those freedoms can play out as people see them, as people understand them, and what we're ultimately communicating. And so, um, because I think that's what Paul really gets into with this whole head covering conversation. And and the goal of this is really about the question of authority and honoring the authority that you have, that Christ is the ultimate authority over all. And yes, uh, um, the head of, of a man is Christ and the head of woman is, is their, her husband. And, and so there, there's all that being played out. But um, I, I think I think the way it plays out is is um, talking about honor and shame quite a bit. Uh, I think there's the, the language is there that the yeah. dishonors Christ or dishonors her husband and stuff like that. So it seems like um, what is going on in the church in Corinth that <clears throat> there's things about heads being shaven. There's things about ways women are speaking, ways men are speaking that in a, in a way that that dishonors um, the the in, in such a way that I would say honor and shame tend to be cultural categories and not necessarily always like a straight 
um, biblical yes or no, right or wrong category. And so there's um, there's stuff going on in the way that women are prophesying, the way that men are prophesying, the way women are maybe wearing their hair, the way men are wearing their hair, whatever it is, that doesn't ultimately show honor towards Christ and, and maybe even shows dishonor towards a spouse, uh, particularly amongst the women. And so... Um, so they're given all these sort of symbolic acts and these symbolic choices to to wear a head covering or not wear a head covering and whatever it may be, and um, and, and so doing are probably muddying the the message of the gospel towards the watching world mm-hmm. um, in a way that makes the woman makes probably the, the outsider go, "Wow, that woman is totally dishonoring her husband," or um, they they the way that man is acting or wearing his hair or whatever is is totally dishonoring the God he says he follows. And so um, it, it seems like Paul's trying to trying to push them here to go, okay, you need to think about that. And you need to think about sort of the the, the witness of of honoring and dishonoring and order and and even even in the natural order of how people seem to be practicing these things, remember how it's practiced. Remember how you see it um, in the world. And so um, yeah. I don't know if I explained that well. Here's what I'll here's what I'll recommend you guys do if if you guys are still struggling with this. Um, I actually think Eugene Peterson does a really really good job with this section in, in verses two through sixteen. And just read through it, see how he parses out some of that language um, because I, I think it's really good in the message translation. Uh, I think his theological convictions around it I think are right. Yeah, uh, I mean, I agree with everything you said. I'm going to summarize it again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would say in the church. I felt more lost, so you might be able to summarize it better than I did. Well, I think, you know, and maybe you're reading this and like, why are Chris and Sarah spending so much time on this? But um, I know I have friends who cover their heads when they pray and things like that. Um, and this has become, for some reason, this section and this instruction has become the main thrust of this passage when actually Paul's heart behind it is what we just talked about, that you are not to assert in, in the church body, don't assert your independence or seek your own glory or gain. Uh, seek to uh, submit to Christ and submit to others in order to better honor them and understand the position that God has placed you in. Um, and there's freedom in that and God is honored in that and there's unity in that. And so honestly, after looking at this passage, I wrote like, I really don't think this has much to do with a literally covered head outside of the Corinthian context, but yeah. um, love and serve the body and play the role that God has assigned to you within the church body. And that doesn't mean to, you should overstep your call and responsibilities, but you also shouldn't back out of them. Yeah. And so dealing with that disorderedness again, or the not lack of unity, uh, Paul gets into this whole, I mean, he gets fired up. I think about this whole Lord's Supper thing. And um, yeah, it seems like what he's presenting is that the church is getting together, but that those that have more means who are not hungry, who are not, poor and starving, um, are eating and drinking and having their own parties. And then, uh, they're either doing that before everybody gets there or they're doing it in a separate room, whatever it is. And those who are, who have less means are struggling and, and yet they're trying to take communion together. And, and Paul's, Paul's sort of like, that's, that's not the purpose. Like you guys are this one thing. And, um, if the, if you're doing these practices, when you come around the table that, that actually break up or, or separate out some of you, then that's that's you totally missed the point of communion to begin with, and and what binds us together is remembering the death of Jesus, and so he sort of gets into what most of us have heard as sort of commu- the communion liturgy. Um, he gets into that section, um, driving at sort of the, the a rebuke around their divisions and pointing towards, uh, in a lot of ways, the gospel and and the death of Jesus, and so. Um, 
Yeah. And, and so it's interesting that it goes the solemnness route, but um, he's still pointing out uh, sort of the, 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 the central piece um, of, of, uh, of Jesus's death. And that's, that's why we get together. And if we're divided over that, it, it actually, in some ways. Um, Paul says it's like worse yeah. that you're together. Yes. Yeah. It's um, way worse. Yeah. I mean, think back to what Christ did on the cross and God and his law. He, they, equalized all people no matter what their social status and so we as believers are to live this way as well and we're to remember that no one is more worthy than another to approach the throne of grace and so we need to operate this way in all of our practices all of our practices yep and so and then we just start into the spiritual gifts section uh, which will be really be uh, 12 and then 14 with 13 as a as a great interlude next week but um, we just started off and and Paul Paul starts talking about them and um, he, he just starts listing some of the gifts but but ultimately he makes the statement that that it is for it is for the common the good common good yeah, yeah. Um, that your the gifting's not about what you get out of it. Uh, it, it's about ultimately what the people, uh, what the, what the church uh, ultimately gets out of it, and 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 the way the Spirit equips people. And hear me, I, I don't think lists often from Paul are exhaustive. Um, I, I think they become a few that we can go, oh yeah, like that. That's a gift that that I've seen people execute somewhere in the church, but gosh, if if we have something that's for the building up of the church, whatever the gift is. I, I I think we can we can point towards um, spiritual giftingness in that. Yeah, um, yeah. So your spiritual gifts. I mean, again, step back and think about it. Maybe you don't know what your spiritual gift is or not, but you are not faithfully stewarding that gift if you are not using it for the building up of the church. And and one of these gifts is not better than the other one. I know that it's really easy to elevate certain gifts, especially the more visual ones, but all are given by the Holy Spirit and all are meant to be used for the common good in the church. So first of all, if you're not using your gifts within the church for the common good, you're neglecting your gift. And second of all, accept the gifts God has given you, whether you're thrilled about it or not, accept them with joy and thanksgiving because yeah. they are from the Lord. Yeah, as the Spirit will. So can't manipulate you can't control it you don't necessarily get to pick it uh but it's needed and and it's needed for the building up of the church and so uh the the church whether you're at resonate or whether you're listening to us or not the church is less if you don't execute or use your gifts within the life of the church and so um it's missing something for you not to do that yeah all right, uh, we got four psalms this week, or three psalms and a part of a psalm. Uh, psalm twenty nine, uh, which uh, I like some of the geography that's laid out in the book. Kind of starts over the Mediterranean Sea, moves to Lebanon, then to Syria, and eventually Kadesh. It kind of moves all throughout Israel. Mm. Uh, the voice of the Lord, which is really like the powerful agent in the poetry there, um, and just sort of the sovereignty of of the way God moves and speaks and thunders uh, over over God's people. Yeah, it's humbling and should inspire some fear and some reverence, I think. Yeah, it, it has definitely some powerful language. And then Psalm 37, at least part of it, um, this is the the classic question that, that the psalmists constantly wrestle with. Like, why why are good things happening to bad people? Or why does bad people get these blessings and, and things working out for them? Um, and, and, and we don't get a total answer, but we get part of the answer, which is like, well, wait. Like, wrongs will be righted. Evilness and wickedness don't have the final answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, like... Time, time ultimately tells. Um, so, and then Psalm 30, I don't know if you had anything to add, Psalm 37. Um, yeah, I think just, you know, step back and remember what the upside down kingdom looks like. The Psalm is a picture of that. Yeah. So Psalm 30, I'd say, you know, David is writing this for the future temple and uh, calls us to reflect on 
the representation of God's presence among Israel. And so just step back for a minute and remember when you read this devotion to God's temple that we are now the temple of Christ and that Christ tabernacled and came among us. And so uh, that's what stood out to me in Psalm 30. Yeah. And, and I like that David's very personal. He's like, look, <clears throat> God's gotten angry at me, but his his angry his anger never lasts that long. And he has mercies, his new mercies for me every day. And yeah, I got high and mighty and I, I turned away or God ultimately turned away when I wasn't humble. And yet he turned my morning into dancing. There's always this hopeful refrain mm-hmm. as David talks about his struggles. And in Psalm 47. Yeah, I think this is something good to pray over our nation and to truly believe no matter what things look like that God is sovereign and reigns over the nations and over the world. Yeah, this is very uh, kingly and and kind of the king of kings kind of language uh, in this section. Uh, And and God goes up with a shout and the Lord with a shofar like God is on his throne. All right, next week, what should we look for? Yeah, so um, I think you're going to see David giving a lot of instructions to the Levites. And just think back to what other parts of the Bible, what does this remind you of? Uh, And do you think the author is trying to make you think of some other books of the Bible or other people on purpose? And why would that be? And then in the New Testament, we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, Before you read it this time, do a little bit of research on the different types of love in the Greek um, and what this specific Greek word for love represents and means. And and how does that impact how you read 1 1 Corinthians 13. Yeah. And so we're, we're going to transition to Solomon. But as I said, we haven't really heard much about Solomon up to this point. Um, we don't know his character. We don't know what he's like. We don't, we just don't know much. And so what are some of his first actions? What, what, what should we make of um, the start of Solomon's uh, story? And um, yeah. And then as we get into the New Testament, yeah, we get to that love chapter that everybody's heard at weddings. But as Paul writes, um, it, Ask the question, is he talking more about an emotion or a person? And, and, and is he personifying? Where is he personifying? Where is he not? And and as you read that, and, and so what might be his goal in doing that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that's it for me this week. Thanks, guys. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, y'all.